0: Uh, so Galatians 4, uh, verse 8 through 20 today. So let us give God's word our full attention. This is the word of the Lord. Formerly, when, uh, when you did not know, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless? elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I was present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this epistle uh, we thank you that you have uh, given it to us. Though uh, it was a letter to Galatia, uh, it was your writing through Paul for the church through all times. That includes us. And so, Lord, I pray that you may use this in all of our lives. Uh, this passage, help me. Uh, carry me along by your Holy Spirit. I'd say nothing more, nothing less than, than what's here. And I pray again for their hearts. Uh, their hearts, too, would be good soil. Uh, Lord, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. When I was growing up, uh, tolerance—excuse <clears throat> me—tolerance and being politically correct were big buzzwords. If any of you remember that, uh, those were—that was a long time ago. You know, tolerance—that's not good enough now. We need to celebrate, right? We want to celebrate what everyone else believes. Oh, how times have changed! Truth telling is not very popular, is it? Uh, this is from an article from the Atlantic. Uh, Magazine in July uh, 21, the name of the article was, American parents are way too focused on their kids' self-esteem. See, why do we not want to truth tell? Because it might hurt their self-esteem. We need everyone to feel good about themselves, right? Both children and adults alike. So here's what the article said. I'm going to reference the 1986, the governor of California signed legislation. i to tell you about the legislation he signed. It was for a task force to promote self-esteem and personal and social responsibility, which concluded that um, boosting Californians' collective level of self-esteem would lower rates of crime, teen pregnancy, drug abuse, welfare dependency, and school underachievement. Wow. All they needed was better self-esteem in California. The task force final report referred to self-esteem as a social vaccine that is central to most of the personal and social problems that plague human life in today's world. The article, this is, it's a hilarious article. So it goes on, it says, self-esteem is largely an American construct. It says, many other countries, including Japan and China, do not give self-esteem much, if any, consideration. Even so much so, some countries' languages don't even have a word for it, for self-esteem. American parents, the article says, are also quick to protect their children from disappointments and failures. We give participation trophies when kids don't win first place. So, I ask you, do you think self-esteem is the great, uh, what does it call it, a social vaccine? Is that really going to solve all our problems? I imagine not many of you would agree with that. Is it our task as parents to just help our kids think well of themselves? I see some heads nodding no. Is it our task that we would help everyone around us? That all of our neighbors and friends just need to think better of themselves, right? The obvious answer to all those is no. This, um, on a personal note, um, God has been teaching me a lot in recent years about something called bold love. You might be more familiar with the term tough love, similar idea. Uh, I've been reading through this um, book here, with that title, uh, bold love. And ironically, I didn't connect the dots. It was recommended by Alan Foster. Um, I forgot that he was going to be here this Sunday when I picked this, but uh, nonetheless. Uh, it has done me a lot of good. The second half of the book is just gold. And uh, the back cover of it says this. I uh, don't think too deeply about the theology of it, but it's, I think it's true. If Christ had practiced the kind of love we advocate nowadays, he would have lived to a ripe old age. <laughs> think about that for a second. right? Because Christ didn't. He actually loved people what was fitting for the situation. The, the woman at the well was gentle. The Pharisees, he confronted them. Right and, Or from a human perspective, it got him strung up on a tree. Um, but love, bold love, is, in, is a rare commodity these days. And he also says in that book, he defines bold love is courageously setting aside our personal agenda to move humbly into the world of others with their well-being, well-being in view, a willing to risk further pain in our souls in order to be aroma of life to some, and aroma of death to others. I think he's right. The reason I start here is because really the whole book of Galatians is tough love, right? But this passage in particular, I think, stands out. And so uh, if you look on page seven, you see the outline. We're answering the question, how does Paul boldly love the Galatians? We're going to see it three clear ways. One way is uh, by boldly connecting the dots. And then secondly, by boldly cashing in relational capital. And then third, and by boldly confronting the opposition. All right, so let's look at the first one. We'll just go through the passage and look at these. Boldly connecting the dots. If you remember last week's passage, and actually the whole retreat, what was the topic? Do you remember? Yes, all right. Some of you were there, and remember. So adoption. Uh, so we are adopted by God. When you became a Christian, you became a child of God, right? And this is wonderful theology, And so right on the tail of this, or this is right after the end of that passage, he picks up with verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature not gods. Okay, the church in Galatia was largely Gentiles, so they're coming out of paganism. So they would have come out of different pagan rituals, uh, the Roman uh, cult, these different things, right? And so they'd been worshiping idols. And so Paul says, you formerly... We're in that. Okay, that's he's laying the groundwork. They would nod their head. Yes, right? We used to be idol worshippers. We're not anymore. Now we're Christians. We're part of the Galatian church. But he's going to go on. Look at verse 9. He says, "But but now you have come to know God." Right? Before you were enslaved to that, now you've come to know God. I love this line. Or rather, to be known by God. Now there's a big difference. Now kids, do you know anyone famous you might know some things about them. Say, I know this person. Or I've even seen them in concert. Or, right. But it's very different if they say, I know you. Right? And so this is what it is. So for God to say, he knows us, is a very, very different thing. The words actually in Greek are even different. So in verse 8, when he says, you did not know God, the word there just means to see, perceive, know something about. But then in verse 9, twice, he uses a different word which is a very intimate knowledge. The same word can be used for sexual knowledge, the most intimate of all knowledges. We are known by God. You think of a little baby in an orphanage that doesn't know anything, and here adoptive parents have come in, and they've they've loved this child. They adopt them, and they know that child from every day forward. This is the way God knows you. A great cross-reference is Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. It says this, even as he chose us in him, so he chose you. When did he choose you? Ephesians 1 says before the foundation of the world, it's a long time ago, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. Through Jesus Christ, according to the will of his purpose. What this means is that God chose you not just when you're a baby in an orphanage. He chose you before he formed the world. It's a really long time ago that he has known you, long before you were even born, which is amazing, right? So this is God's knowledge. And so the Galatians are saying, yes, we used to be idol worshiper. Now we're known by God. Oh, but now he's going to turn. Look at the rest of verse 9. How can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Okay, he's blasting them again. Whose slaves you want to be once more? All right, what Paul is doing here is he's boldly connecting the dots. Let me connect the dots for you, what he's saying. Okay. So here they were in idol worship, right? They know that's bad. Now Now they're Christians. They were doing all kinds of bad stuff. They've now become Christians. They look back at that and say, that was bad, we've left that behind. Now what Paul is saying is, you've actually turned back to that. Now does this mean that they're actually going back to idol worship? No. Then what does he mean? Why is he accusing them of being back here when they're there? What do you think? The reason is, is that paganism and perverted Christianity are no different. Let me say it again. Paganism and perverted Christianity are no different. What he's saying is is when you add, because remember what, the whole book of Galatians, the Judaizers have come in and said, yeah, you've got faith, you need works too. You need a bunch of Jewish stuff, right? Start doing these Jewish rituals. What this is saying is remember Jesus, he fulfilled all of the ceremonial law, right? It was good for Jews to do the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, Right? Nod your head yes. Right? It's good. But are we there? No, we're not there. So then when you're here and you're still doing what Jesus fulfilled, it's now lifeless. Lifeless just like what they were doing here. Do you see that? So he's saying, when you start doing all these rituals that are lifeless, as, a, as saying you're a Christian, you're no better off than when you were in paganism. Now this has to slap them right in the face, wouldn't it? To say you're you're actually no better off than you used to be when you were pagans worshiping these idols and these cults. He is clearly connecting the dots for them. Look at the passage he goes on. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. These are Jewish things. They were observing all this Jewish stuff. Remember, in the beginning of the book he said circumcision. See, the Judaizers are not satisfied with just Getting him circumcised, they wanted to add all kind of stuff. This is, this is the Jewish calendar. You need to do all these festivals, all these things, if you're actually going to be a good Christian. So the Judaizer said. Look at verse 11. He says, I am afraid that I, am, that I have labored over you in vain. It means that I'm worried that I actually, went, my ministry to you was a fail. I didn't actually accomplish what my goal was, which was actually converting you and establishing a church. This, would hurt them to hear. You know, Philip Ryken in his commentary uses that analogy of the father being adopted. So the father adopts a child out of an orphanage. The child grows up, and this is like them saying, I want to go back to the orphanage. He said, It's ridiculous. No orphan would ever want to do that, to go back to the orphanage. But this is what they've done. They've said, Oh, now we're Christians. This is great. Now let's add lifeless things to it. You see what he's doing. I hope. He is connecting dots. This is bold love, right? It's, boldly, it's bold to say that you're actually no better off than you were a long time ago. The, this, do you remember the parable of um, the prodigal son? Remember, there are two sons, right? And one was the wicked son. He asked for the inheritance, he went off, and he spent it. He lived a very wicked life. But then um, he came back, right? He repented, came back to his father. Had the father respond? Kids, show me, was the father angry or happy? Yep, I see some smiles. Yeah, there we go. He's super happy. He throws a big party. What does the older brother do? The older brother's not happy. He is not smiling. right? He is so angry. He is legalistically, he's been obeying the father. There's actually two prodigal sons, one that ran away and one that stayed. right? The, the other prodigal son didn't know that he was. right? And so he was so angry that he comes back. Everyone's celebrating except for who? The other son. Did you know the hardest people to convert Are the religious, the hardest people to convert are religious. Some of you children, this can apply to you. You're growing up in church. If you do not become a Christian, your heart can easily become hard to say, hey, I I can jump through all the hoops. I've been doing this since I was a kid. The religious are some of the hardest to convert because of this. So so also, think how hard it would be to convert the Galatians if they give in to the the, um, Judaizers. Right? Once they've added in faith and works, they have, they're deceived. We do not want, I don't want you to be deceived. Are there not people that you know that are deceived like this? Do you know anyone who is convinced they're a Christian and it's by their good life? Is it possible that God might want you to boldly love them? Right? This is just what Paul did, didn't he? He connected the dots for them. He said, "This is what you're doing is ridiculous. You're back to paganism. You're back to paganism. I want to um, make another application to parents, parents of children. Do you ever do this for your children? Do you ever connect the dots for your children? Now, if you've got very young children, I don't recommend this in any great, great length. Yeah, after about two minutes, you probably just need to discipline them, right? No long 30-minute explanation of the recesses of their souls. You know, you just tell them, here's the law of God, you broke it and you broke mom and dad's rule, and I'm going to discipline you, right? Okay, but they aren't going to stay little. Surprise, they're going to grow up. As they get older, you're going to need to do this. You will need to connect the dots for them. Help them understand what are the implications. I can remember this. When I was a young child, I was homeschooled. Later went to private and then public school, young child homeschooled. My mom was giving me like an English test or something, vocab thing, and and I cheated on it. Not the best thing to do. You aren't going to get away with it when you only have... Uh, a class of one, you're probably going to get caught. And so I got caught. Um, I got my, my uh, bottom paddled. But then she explained to me and said, son, if you keep doing this, do you understand what this will do to your life? Like this is what happens in college if you cheat. This is what happens in a career. You'll lose your job, son. I can, that was like 35 years ago. I can still remember that conversation. My mom connected dots for me that I can still remember that I was, on a, at a very young child, on a trajectory that led bad places. Do you ever do this for your children? Do you ever connect the dots for them, particularly as they get older? You need to do this to help them understand, where does this lead? Where's the current path I'm on lead? Okay, so he's connecting the dots. Now he's going to do something else. Let's look. He's gonna, we're going to jump around a little bit, but I'm going to go through the passage sequentially even though later verses are going to still apply to this point. So just hold on to that fact. All right, point two, boldly cashing in relational capital. Kids, do you know what relational capital is? Probably not. Well, capital means like money or an asset. Okay, so relational money it still doesn't make much sense to you. This is what happens as a friendship grows. Right? As you get to know your neighbor, don't you trust them more? Right, and then you know each other better and you know that you can count on each other, it's called relational capital. Okay, As as friendships grow, you get this. Okay, so how is Paul going to cash in relational capital? Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12, he begins with, Brothers, I entreat you. I'll pause there. That same phrase, New American Standard, translates it, I beg you, and IV translates, I plead with you. Have you ever heard me say that to you? I, at times, will say, I plead with you. It's because I really care about you and I really want you to listen to whatever I'm saying. Paul is doing that. Paul is pleading with them. Hendrickson, is, in his commentary, says about this paragraph, following Paul's rather sharp reproof in verses 8 to 11, we just talked about that, as he connected the dots, is followed immediately by tender, urgent, intense personal appeal. This paragraph, in this commentary's opinion, is one of the most gripping in all of Paul's epistles. That's a big statement. So let's look at this paragraph he's talking about. Brothers, I entreat you. He's pleading with them. What's he pleading with them? Become as I am, look at verse 12, that for I also have become as you are. What does that mean? Well, remember, Paul used to be a Pharisee. He obeyed all the ceremonial law. He became a Christian, and he left all that behind. He came to Galatia, and the old, as a Pharisee, he never would have eaten with all these Galatians, but he does. He has left that behind. He has become basically like a Gentile in the ceremonial way. Does that make sense? So he says, I've become like you. I've left all these ceremonial things behind. You don't need to go back to that. Be as I am. I'm free from that. You should be free too. Does that logic make sense? That's his logic in verse 12. So he's pleading with them entreating them to do that. Then look at 13 and 14. He says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ. We don't know what the bodily ailment was, but something was going on with his body. And it made him have to stay there. And so it's as if he's saying, when I was there, I was stuck there. You were so kind to me. What's happened now is kind of the, the point of this. He'll push it even further. Look at the next verse. Well, actually, before that, look at the end of fourteen. He says, "You receive me like an angel of God as Christ Jesus." Wow. Wouldn't you love to be received like that? This is how they were. How was they received? Paul then fifteen. He, I know this is kids. This is kind of a gross analogy, but this is what Paul says. He says, "Um, "What then has become of your blessedness? You felt so blessed when I was there. What's going on now?" I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Yeah, I know it's gross. But he's saying, you love me so much, you would have gouged your eyes out. You would have sacrificed anything for me. That's quite a word picture, isn't it? Why is he doing all this? He is reminding them of the relational capital he built when he was there. They had this amazing, loving relationship when he was there, and he's, he's bringing it to their recollection. He's saying, what's the deal now? right? You, are, you love me so well. You, you receive me like this. You would have gouged out your eyes. But now you're listening to these other people. Do you see how he's boldly cashing in relational capital? I hope you do. So I ask you, how often do you take risks like that? Could you ever say anything and then say verse 16 after it? Look at verse 16. This is an amazing verse. You're talking to your friend And then at the end of it, you say this. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? How often could that be said at the end of, you know, just tacked on to what you're saying? Probably pretty rarely. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Proverbs 27, verse 5 to 7 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Do you see how personal this passage is, and yet how direct it is? That he's boldly loving them, but it's, it's um, full of affection as well. That's what bold love is. It's loving and also bold. This is what we see of Paul. And I think there's two groups of people in the world. One that never build relational capital. The other never spend it. Which are you? Do you build relational capital? Do you build trust with other people? with both Christians and non-Christians? And then do you ever spend it? Do you ever cash it in? This is what Paul's doing. He's both built it and he's cashing it in. Do you have real friendships with your neighbors? Just think for a moment. Are there any neighbors that you know well enough that you'd have any relational capital to cash in? I'm going to get even closer to home. What about your children? Do you have relational capital with your children? Do you actually spend quality time with your children that you have something to spend when you need to have a hard conversation? I'll take it even closer. Do you have relational capital with your spouse? You'd think this one would just happen naturally, but anyone who's been married for a long time knows that you can just get really busy, right? we need to build relational capital with each other. And then at times it needs to be cashed in. I just want you to take a moment and ask yourself that question in your heart. Do you build relational capital with those around you and do you ever cash it in? Paul now turns sharply to focus on his enemies. Third and finally, he boldly exposes the opposition. Look at verse 17. They, who's the they? The Judaizers, the bad guys. Kids, in this book... The Judaizers did what? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. They make much of you. Kids, have your parents ever told you not to talk to strangers? Have they ever told you, like, if someone comes and says, "Hey, I have a puppy to show you in my van. You want to come see it?" Right? Have your parents said, "You know, any any time a stranger offers you a gift or something." You laugh because we all said that when we were or heard it when we were kids. But, fathers, I want to speak to you particularly for a moment, particularly if you have a daughter. So, fathers of daughters, it's at least two thirds of you. Do you ever connect the dots for your daughters? Not every man is, not every man's motives are what they appear. Do you ever connect those dots? There are men, do you ever tell your daughters that will make much of you? But they, and as they get older, you can explain what the, the guy's purposes are. Right? Do you, you need to teach your daughters right up? This is, is this not what Paul's doing? He's saying, these people are making much of you, but it's for no good purpose. Why? What do they want to do? Look at the rest of 17. They want to shut you out, they want to isolate you from. Paul and everyone else, anyone else that would threaten, that you would make much of them. Dictators do this. Dictators do this. They try to control all the media in their countries, that they would control the narrative. They would control what everyone is thinking in their country. right? They isolate their country from everyone, any outside influence. It's not just dictators that do this. Churches do this. Now, that's really close to home. Did you know that there are churches that will do this. And I say this so that this may never be true of us. That give off these vibes that everyone else is kind of out to lunch. Like we're the ones that really have this figured out. That is really bad. No. No, we have the same Bible that every other church has. Now, there are weaker and stronger churches, but by no means are we the ones that really have the corner on truth. There are churches that do that. And now speaking again, Not to the fathers, but to the girls, to single girls. Kids, watch out. If a guy, as you get older, so you have to stick this in your mind for a long time. If a guy tries to isolate you from your parents and your friends, run away. He is bad news. There are guys that will do that. The reason they want to do that is they want to control you. Is this not the same thing Paul's saying here? They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. They want to control you. Do, never, never date a guy, don't even get close to a guy that's like that. You see how practical this is? This is extremely practical. He's exposing the opposition. We need to expose the opposition to each other, that we would understand what is going on. Okay, so now, remember I told you that there's some verses that fit back in old buckets? All right, so remember, what was the first bucket? He boldly connected the dots. Second bucket was he cashed-in relational capital. Look at verse 18. You get to decide what bucket this goes in. See if you can figure it out. Verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I was present with you. They actually made much of Paul when he was there, didn't they? He says, great that you made much of me when I was there. You would gouge out your eyes when I was there, but what about now? Okay, which bucket does that fit into? If you said, cashing in relational capital, you would be correct. He's reminding them again. You made much of me then. What about now? You see that? All right, look at the next verse. What bucket does this fit in? My little children. Now, moms, pay attention to this. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. Okay, so now Paul's talking like a mama. What is he saying? Well, if you're again in the pain of childbirth, what does it mean about what you were doing yesterday? It was false labor. That's what he's saying here. Back in verse 11, he said, I'm worried that I labored over you in vain. You remember Braxton Hicks contractions? Right? So you all that work and you had nothing to show for it. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm actually worried that what my ministry to you was like false labor. I did all that work. Look, look at the verse. Look at 19. He says that I am again in the pain of childbirth. The implication of that is that you aren't born again. That's what he's saying to them. He's saying if he's again in the pain of childbirth, the baby hasn't been born yet. Which is that? Is he cashing in relational capital? Or is he connecting the dots? I think he's connecting the dots. He's saying, if you give in to these Judaizers and you go and follow them, you are Christians. That is no gospel at all. The religious are the hardest to convert. Does that make sense? He's connecting the dots for them. He again is in the pain of childbirth. Well, we come to our last verse. Verse. Let's see where this fits. Verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. He wishes he could change his tone. He says, I wish I, I was there with you, not writing a letter. We could straighten all this out face to face, he's saying. I am perplexed about you. Other, The New American Standard says, I'm at a loss about you. So he's saying, I'm, I'm at my wit's end you do not want to get a letter from the great apostle Paul and in it he says, I'm at my wit's end about you. That's what he said to them. I mean, think about the whole book we've studied. He's come at this from like a bazillion camera angles. He's just chipping away. Same point, same point, same point, same point. He's like, I can't think of another way to come at this. I'm at my wit's end about you. I'm so sad that you are deceived by these Judaizers. I wish I was there with you. I could change my tone. Okay, what bucket does that fit in? He's cashing his relational capital. He says, I wish I could be there with you. That mattered to them because when he was with them, they were ready to gouge their eyes out. Do you see how he's done this? How he just keeps going back and forth. The reality is I've been the recipient of bold love from trusting friends and mentors. Even that man there at times has boldly loved me. And even some of you have at times. And I'm so thankful. It's sent me a world of good. But many of us have lived most of our lives up to this point rarely ever boldly loving anyone in any situation. That's, that was true of me for most of my life. Is it true of you? Do you ever boldly love anyone? Speaking the truth, connecting the dots for them, cashing in relational capital, exposing the opposition. I hope you do. Of course, don't forget to build the relational capital so you can cash it in. As we close, I want to remind you that someone boldly loved each and every one of you. I know it. At some point, someone boldly loved you. It is when they had the audacity to tell you that you are a hopeless sinner. That would be bold love. Did someone not tell you that? That you cannot save yourself? They did. They told you that your only hope was to run to Jesus, right? That he would pay for your sins. Did they not tell you that if you don't run to Jesus, that you will pay for your own sins in hell? That would be bold love. Did you not hear that at some point in your life? Has someone not told you that? For almost every one of you, the answer is yes. Someone boldly loved you with the gospel. It is very offensive. One of the most offensive things. I'm so thankful that someone told me and told you. And because of that, brothers and sisters, you are now sons of God. You are children of God, adopted children of God. And it is in that adoption that we now have the freedom to boldly Love others. To love your spouse, to love your children, to love your neighbors and coworkers and friends because you are now a son of God. Amen, let's pray. Father, thank you for the bold love that Paul gave to the Galatians. I I hope that many of them received it. It broke through their hard hearts and they were protected from the Judaizers. Lord, I pray that this passage would even break through for us if there, if there is anyone here who is not actually a Christian yet. May the truths of what I just said penetrate their hearts in, and for the first time, that they would be saved. And then, Lord, I pray that because we do now have this new freedom, that you would help us all boldly love each other, boldly love our families, be able to speak the truth, connect dots when they need to be connected. Cash in relational capital and expose the opposition. Lord, I pray that for myself and all of us, please continue to grow us in this way. For your glory and the good of those around us. We pray in the name of Christ, amen.